Welcome to the conversation on TYT. And today we have uh, the treat of talking with Sarah Jaffe. And Sarah's going to join us talking to us about the work she's doing, about the book she's working on right now, which is called Work Won't Love You Back, uh, but also about a phenomenon that has come out of uh, the COVID crisis for working Americans, one that neither she uh, nor you, I'm betting, knew about. And that is about PTO debt. Sarah Jaffe, welcome to the Young Turks. Hi, thanks for having me. So, you know, uh, I, I want to know, and I'm, I'm saying this, you always feel disingenuous when you do know the story because you just told it to me, but I do <laughs> want everyone to know the story uh, about what gave you the idea to write this article and to expose something that many people before this pandemic had no idea about. Yeah, so I was, I've been doing a series at Descent Magazine along with my colleague Michelle Chen talking to people about their experiences of working in pandemic conditions. So I was talking to a Sephora worker who was concerned about reopening, obviously a makeup store. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned about health hazards. And she was saying to me that if we take our paid time off and we take more of it than we have earned, right, then we go into PTO debt. And I was just like, wait, 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 wait a minute here. PTO debt? And she explained to me that, right, you you get, you have to sort of earn back the PTO that you've used. And that if you get laid off or quit before your PTO has been earned back, you would actually have to pay it back to the company out of your last paycheck. So let me, that let me seems, interrupt, for one, let me interrupt yeah. for one second. This is on me too. PTO is personal time paid off. Time off. Pay, yeah. paid, time, paid personal time off. Paid time off. Right. Uh, yeah, and, we should explain a little bit about that yeah. because um, a lot of companies and even some now state and city laws are um, grouping sick time and vacation time and everything into one big lump, which is paid time off. And so you use it for vacation. If you're lucky, if you're sick, then you don't get a vacation because you've used all your sick time. Um, so some of the workers that I spoke to for this piece kind of end up using all of their paid time off for their sickness or maybe their kids or family members that they were responsible for. So this is a sort of whole phenomenon in the way that this country gives people time off. So then you found out um, uh, this. Yeah. It's <laughs> saying that this that this is happening with her, which of yeah. course means it's not just happening at Sephora. Right. So I literally just sort of tweeted an offhand thing of like thing I just learned about in an interview with a Sephora worker about PTO debt. And I got a ton of responses from people saying, yeah, this happened to me. Um, I One of the people who reached out to me because of that tweet is um, the union staff steward that I spoke to for this piece. Um, Remy Huerta Stemper from AFSCME Local 34 in Minnesota. Um, and she put me in touch with one of her workers who had been trying to negotiate this negative PTO is what they were calling it there that was put in place because of the governor of Minnesota's um, emergency declaration over the pandemic. So this meant that now workers who normally would have had a different situation with PTO now they, they get the, the favor of getting their negative PTO if they need extra sick time, right? During a pandemic, you might need extra sick time. Right. Except instead of this just being a thing that we should give people on the understanding that it is a global pandemic and lots of people are going to get sick and that this virus in particular is is holding people, you know, out of work in bad condition for sometimes much longer than two weeks, that we should just perhaps give people sick time. Now they are having it, you know, sort of extracted from their paycheck in this way. 
And so, yeah, this is apparently more widespread than I knew. This is, goes back a few years. In some of these cases, these people that I talked to had been sick or had surgery um, years ago and had this happen to them. But in this particular moment, obviously, when we're seeing the government, you know, temporarily expand sick time, um, it's particularly galling to find out that people are going to be indebted to their employers for, you know, having been ill. Yeah. And it comes at a time, too, where everybody is sort of adjusting to what this new normal is, temporary or not. I mean, even banks, you know, credit card companies saying you don't have to make your your payments uh, right. monthly. We'll give you a break on that. But we're still going to charge you the interest and that's going right. to approve. So th there's a similarity in what's going on. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, businesses and banks are in the business of collecting interest. So uh, you understand some of that motivation, but you don't understand the personal side of it. You don't understand right. necessarily either when it comes to these businesses. What's being done now? How is it being addressed? That's the problem. This seems to be perfectly legal. I spoke to um, Sherry Lywart from A Better Balance, which is an organization that fights for sort of work family policy. And she was saying one of the things that happened when they started pushing for these paid sick time laws, um, you know, it was not so long ago that New York City, for instance, passed its paid sick time law. That came in when Bill de Blasio was first elected mayor of New York after having fought for it under Mayor Bloomberg for quite a long time. And the thing that they put into these bills to make them sort of more palatable was saying it's earned sick time. So you accrue a certain amount of sick time for every amount, you know, every week you work, you accrue a couple hours maybe of sick time that you can use in the future. And again, the problem with that is that sometimes people get sick before they accrue enough time to cover the time off that they need for whatever they might have been sick with. Um, sometimes people have family emergencies, sometimes people have babies. Um, and we don't in this country, we're one of the few industrialized countries that has no federal provision for paid sick time. And so when you go into deficit on your personal time <laughs> off, what that yeah. can create is uh, is a bad workplace because you're going to have oh, yeah. somebody who could be sick, who's coming to work because they need to earn back their paid time off uh, while they could be infecting the office with whatever it is that they have, but they don't right. want to lose that paid time off. So they're going to get themselves to the office or to the workplace or uh, of whatever it is uh, in order to, to earn that time back. So it really works against the entire community of workers, no matter how big or small. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, paid sick time is a public health issue. We should have realized that now, if at no time before this, when you're thinking about um, the people who handle your food, right? Who are the essential workers that have been going to work under this pandemic? They are grocery store workers. They are food service workers. They are the people who are handling the things that you are going to ingest to keep you alive. And if they are going to work with coronavirus or even the common cold or the flu, the odds of you getting that are, are much higher if they have no ability to say, I'm sick and I should stay home. And now, right, if you are somebody like one of these workers that I spoke to who had surgery fairly early on into his um, employment at one company and then had used up all of his PTO and went into negative paid time off, he couldn't use any paid time off until he had earned back what he had spent. So that meant now, right, if he had the coronavirus, he's stuck with either figuring out, you know, well, do I go get tested and stay home like the government is advising me to? Or do I just suck it up and go to work because I can't really afford to not and I've got no paid time off left? 
Right. And that's and that's an extreme. I mean, the coronavirus right. is an extreme. He could have anything and yeah. come in and, and just spread an illness in the office, which is going to cut into productivity uh, at the factory, at the store, where, wherever that person is. Uh, mm-hmm. So there is a bankruptcy now. A new, just what America needs is a new kind of bankruptcy, it's a new <laughs> bankruptcy uh, that we're dealing with. The book that you're working on right now is called yeah. Work Won't Love You Back. And this is seeming uh, like it fits right in <laughs> with, with this entire conversation, isn't it? That that people seeing their their work as an other rather than a them. And and how, can you explain that and how these two tie in a little bit? Yeah, so the book I'm writing is about the way that we are expected more and more to find all of our sort of fulfillment and meaning on the job. And for people like you and me, we, we have jobs that probably do give us some meaning and that's great. But like when I worked in restaurants, which I did for you know a good 10 years of my life, I was still expected to go to work with a big smile on my face and, and, you know, as though I was, had never been more thrilled than to serve you sushi and sushi's great and all, but like being a sushi waitress is not that much fun. And so this, um, you know, when you went to work in a factory, say you don't have to smile at the machine while you're, you know, stamping dies or whatever it is that you're doing all day. Right. You don't have to smile at the car when it comes past you on the assembly line, you go to work, and work might suck and my work might be great, but it's work. And then you leave and you go do something else. And now as those jobs fade or get outsourced, more and more of the jobs that we have in this country are jobs where you have to have some level of emotional investment in that work. And what this this sort of paid time off thing fits into that in this way of, of right, like you're incentivizing people to come to work no matter what. Um, And we're building these structures that actually force people to come to work no matter what, even as we're sort of told that people go to work because they love it and work is meaningful. And this is where we get um, our sense of purpose in the world. Really, we're going to work because we don't have a lot of choice. And that's uh, pretty clear, especially now when you see people that don't have work that they can go to in so many numbers uh, mm-hmm. of how necessary. I mean, we go back to, you know, Necessary Trouble. Uh, that's your first book. And I, yeah. I, I stumbled upon it by accident there. But there is something <laughs> necessary about uh, having to go about going to work because it puts food on the table. It go, right. does give you that purpose. And now people are finding they don't even have work to go to. And the work when they get there is doing things like putting them into negative personal time off, that paid time off. Um, and, and I think that that's an important, um, an important distinction to make about how you are valued by your work as much as how you value work itself. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about the, the way that the coronavirus has sort of made things that the, the Sephora worker, in fact, that, that said this to me in the beginning, said to me, you know, this was an all right job before. It wasn't a great job, but it was a fine job. But suddenly, in a moment when like you might get a horrible illness from going to that fine job, it's no longer a fine job. And it's sort of tearing off the veil of, you know, likable work and showing us that really underneath it all, I mean, we go to work because we have to, because that's how we pay the bills in this country. And because, you know, the landlord wants the rent and the grocery store doesn't take smiles as payment. Uh, 2020 has been a year of tearing off many veils. Sarah Jaffe, uh, thank you for writing that piece. Uh, we look forward to uh, Work Won't Love You Back, your your forthcoming book. When what, is there a release date yet, or is it just a work in progress? Yeah, time? no, it's it will be out in January of 2021, um, all things working the way they should. Uh-huh.
here's hoping that you can tour that book and go visit lots of bookshops mm-hmm. uh, at, at that point. Uh, uh, Sarah Jaffe, thanks again for being on the conversation on TYT. Thank you. Welcome to the Conversation on Young Turks, Michael Shore, and I am uh, really delighted today to be having a conversation with Tiwa Chang. Tiwa is a part of the Young Turks family. He works for TYT Investigates as investigative correspondent. Uh, but for me, as someone who has watched news his whole life, uh, I watched Tiwa in New York uh, covering uh, covering the city, covering Rudolph Giuliani most especially. And so, uh, Tiwa, it's really great to be able to interview and have a chat with you uh, here on the conversation. Thank you so much. Although Rudy Giuliani is certainly a conversation piece now. He is. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think 11 minutes is enough to, uh, <laughs> to cover the former mayor. But, yeah, he is a conversation piece. But you uh, had that conversation going for quite a while before anybody was really analyzing, um, you know, why people might be sort of uh, have the wool over their eyes uh, when it comes to Julie, uh, Rudy Giuliani. So uh, interesting stuff that you did early on around 9-11 as well. Let's talk, though, about the issue of the moment as you're covering it, which is climate. And the fact that it's not really an issue of the moment when it should be. What are you finding in terms of an intransigence on on uh, on moving forward any kind of legislation on climate? Well, right now, the my piece, basically, which is in TYT Investigates, asks the question, uh, with which has a simple and complex answer: Why is there no green stimulus money if we've got literally trillions of dollars being spent? Uh, for the economy, and not one cent has gone to save the environment to s- stop the climate crisis, you've got to wonder why. And the simple answer is because Donald Trump is president of the United States, and he's anti-environment and pro-business, and especially pro-fossil fuel, in particular oil industry, especially those who donate to his campaigns. That's number one, and also Mitch McConnell in the Senate not allowing anything to go through. That's the simple answer. The complex answer, though, is something that's scary to some Democrats, and that If you pass any kind of climate change legislation and it becomes law or even propose it, there hasn't even been a a major proposal, that if you do that, Trump and the Republicans will be able to then use it as an easy talking point against uh, Joe Biden, against Democrats. In particular, they're saying uh, Mark Lauder, who is the director of the strategic planning for the Trump campaign, actually just put out a few days ago a tweet where he listed all the things he said, the supposed Biden agenda. Number one, we've heard before, higher taxes. Number two, more regulations. And number three, Green New Deal. And Donald Trump himself on June 5th talked about the Green New Deal, saying it's stupid and and bragged about having a wonderful environmental record, which is a complete lie. And then, so they've already begun attacking the Green New Deal. And there are some Democrats who believe if they're able to do that effectively, it could actually, you know, convince voters in swing states with, and the a belief is that they, the Republicans and President Trump would use gross exaggerations, lies, saying things like, oh, with Green New Deal, you won't be able to own a car. With Green New Deal, you won't be able to fly anywhere. And those gross exaggerations, uh, some Democrats feel, could convince voters in swing states not to vote Democratic and vote for President Trump and reelect him. And as one Democrat pointed out to me who did not want to be identified, he said, if that happens, if President Trump is reelected, there's zero chance for any environmental change. In fact, it's going to go more the other way, which has been his record so far. 
Yeah, and even recently in Alaska, I mean, they, they seem to be putting aside any kind of protection for Alaskan land. Uh, the politics of that are interesting because gross exaggerations, you could say, are why Donald Trump is in the Oval Office in the first place. Uh, it is how he has operated from the Oval Office. Something like the Green New Deal, climate change, these are issues that poll really well for Americans. I was all over the country during the primaries until I couldn't be anymore. And everywhere I went, it didn't matter what state it was, Democrats were talking about climate in a way that I hadn't heard them over several years talk about it. It used to be the kind of issue that, oh, it's down the pike. Uh, we, we as Americans, uh, we, we vote these pocketbook issues, issues about what's happening right at this moment for us. And climate change is in the future for us. Something changed where people know about it and talk about it now. Why is that not hitting Capitol Hill yet? Is it is there still a fear that it's a third rail issue that they don't want to be labeled about? Get get Trump out of there and then do our business. Are you convinced they're going to? Yes, that's exactly what the thinking is among some of the what some would call centrists or moderate uh, Democrats. And they, the feeling is that just look, Donald Trump is a brilliant marketer. He is he's a con man. And but and that's my opinion, but he is also brilliant at what he does in the sense of he's he's very entertaining. He comes up with these pithy slogans, you know, think about it, make America great again is, is a great campaign slogan, calling him Sleepy Joe, calling it Crooked Hillary. He comes up with these things and he's very entertaining and people like that. And he's able to communicate well. And so what happens is the fear is that he'll be able to communicate very well with the Green New Deal. He'll make up something and and also uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, extremely popular with progressive Democrats and young people, is also a lightning rod because she's a Democratic, you know, self-proclaimed Democratic socialist. That one word, socialism, you know, which is, by the way, what the Republicans used in the 1930s when Roosevelt came up with Social Security and unemployment insurance and all that. They also called that socialism, which it is to a degree. But if you break it down individually, people accept it. But if you call it socialism, a lot of people in this country don't accept it. So the thing is, yes, that is what people are thinking. But the same activists who told me that the reason why there's no uh, climate bill is because uh, Democrats are politically afraid that Trump will use it as a talking point. He also said he thinks they're wrong because he points to a poll that 70 percent of Americans believe climate change is very serious, needs to be dealt with. And 80 percent of millennial Americans believe that it's something that has to be addressed as well. And now even with the present mass demonstrations for Black Lives Matter and against police brutality, the environmentalists are joining in saying that they have seen through the pandemic this kind of um, the, the racism involved in, in the environment and that so many more uh, communities of color, because they're closer to these, these waste sites and to the dump sites and the industries, their lungs are damaged more. And so the COVID-19, has, which attacks the lungs, actually has more impact. And I think in Chicago, it's it's more than double the number of deaths uh, among African Americans is more than double what it is among the rest of the population, as far yeah. as you know, as the statistics. So yes, it shouldn't be that way. It should be clear. And they, some of the activists say, you know, look, uh, we have the we have the country behind us. Take a step. Be a little bit more bold. But a lot of them are just convinced that you know, if you do that, you know, we can lose. And it's sort of like, you know, you have you have a uh, like. Bernie Sanders had 16 trillion for his Green New Deal, which is what I think closer to what is really going to be needed. You know, and now Joe Biden had a 1.5, roughly 1.5 trillion. But, you know, Donald Trump is negative. You know, it's not even any positive. It's like minus 100 or something like that. 
So that's that's the, uh, the hearing you hearing you say 16 and knowing Joe Biden has 1.5 and Trump is negative. Is there a big difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on climate? I think there is. I mean, that's my opinion. And, uh, you know, like if you have I, I agree that if Donald Trump is president in the next four years, there will be nothing done for the environment from the worst polluter in the world. And that's the United States. I, I absolutely agree with that. And so even if it's 1.5 trillion, Joe Biden, you know, because uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is working with John Kerry to revamp his green program, I think you'll be seeing that probably after he gets elected, those numbers will move. But you know what? At this point, uh, you know, Donald Trump is minus 1.5 million yeah. or minus 10 trillion. I mean, that's that's you know the the reality of it. And so it's sort of like if you're to me, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, and then you say, well, Joe Biden's not good enough, and then you stay away and you help right. elect Donald Trump. That's what happened in 2016. So have you found, and I guess I'm asking your opinion here, but is is there some wisdom in this posture politically uh, saying, you know what, let's not push this thing now uh, if it will be something that the president is going to use to divide the country in an election as a wedge issue. We all know how those work. Uh, and usually the country comes around to those wedge issues. You look at civil rights, you look at gay marriage. Uh, they, there's so many of them. Perhaps climate will be one day. But are we better off doing that plan and then allowing Donald Trump to lose and then moving on with climate? If that's if that would actually happen, I think the answer is yes. But I'm not sure that's necessarily the way it has to go. For example, that whole poll, if there were some bold Democrats who would say, hey, listen, you can say whatever you want to say, but we have to deal with the climate crisis. And this is what we believe. Then you might also bring in a lot of the millennials to vote as well. I mean, they may already be coming in. I mean, I, I have not seen, I don't, I'm not privy to those, those intense focus groups and the, those polls, but if the millennials are coming anyway, then maybe you do wait. But if they're not coming because of this climate uh, position, then somebody needs to, you know, take a stand. And, and at least at, to me, if I were in charge and I'm not, I would say at least try something. And it's a tough time uh, to be to, to be in a position to show passion uh, because of COVID, because not you're not able to to campaign. You're not able to do town halls on climate. You're not able to make it a focus in that way. So uh, I, I have a little bit of uh, sympathy for the people that are trying to do that uh, in this particular election. Uh, Joe Biden. Well, we've had mass demonstrations for Black Lives Matter. We, I mean, we have. And, and so maybe, you know, maybe uh, which is not great for science of the pandemic either, but at least most of the people there are wearing masks, at least the ones I saw in New York City. But, you know, maybe you need to have everybody spaced out six feet and then have them. I don't know. But it's the point is there is bold action, not smart. And, and uh, I think bold action is always smart. But that's the opinion of somebody who's never been elected to anything. So. <laughs> well, I think those are uh, those are good words to leave this on. Bold action is always smart. And that's Tiwa Chang, who's always been smart and very smart on the issue of climate. So you should check him out at TYT Investigates, uh, read what he has written. Uh, and, yes, uh, you'll see Alexandria, if I could pitch yeah. for it, you'll see like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Cortez, uh, on the cover. So go to TYT Investigates and get my numbers up. <laughs> All right, yeah, come on, help Ty out. And I mean, a, it's AOC, folks. If, if she's not going to sell articles on, on TYT, she's not going to sell them. Uh, this is TYT. This is The Conversation. Thanks for watching. Thank you.